Today is a little bit of a different podcast. Today I'm talking to Brian Calvert, who you might know through Dixie the Praying Dog, who was a competitor on the TV show The Pack. Now, if you've been following me for a long time or you know my backstory, I was involved in training the dogs for the pack and I was also one of the dog safety team. So we went around the world and kind of made sure everyone was safe and made sure that the dogs were uh, just having the best time that they could possibly have and were prepared for the challenges that they were going to face on this kind of travel reality show that we did for Amazon Prime Video. And Brian was one of the competitors on that show. So Brian isn't a professional dog trainer, um, but he is involved in, uh, he's obviously involved in dogs. He's a massive dog lover. That's the dogs are his life. Of course, that's why he's on this podcast. And uh, he's trained his dog Dixie for um, trailing injured deer, essentially. So uh, Brian is involved in in trailing a lot. And also he uses his dog uh, Dixie for uh, helping with retired veterans and uh, children and just kind of um, really helping as a um, kind of therapy dog, I guess would be the correct term. And I've obviously spent a lot of time with Brian on the TV show. Fantastic guy. Dixie is just an absolutely lovely dog. Really, I mean, uh, and and the, the bond that the two of them have is really special. So, uh, so I just thought it would be really interesting to kind of catch up with Brian and hopefully... You know, you guys can get a little bit of a picture of maybe some of the behind the scenes stuff that happened on the pack and how it kind of worked and, you know, what that whole experience was like. And uh, yeah, if you were a show of the pack, if you're a fan of the show, sorry, then uh, this will be a really cool episode for you, hopefully. So let's get into it. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick, thanks for having us. I know it's really good to talk to you and. I guess I'm hoping that we can just kind of, I don't know, just catch up about the pack, what you've been doing since and what Dixie's been up to. And I don't know, just have a bit of a, a chill conversation, really. Yeah, I mean, those, those reviews are the best. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about, man. We've been super busy. We just got home from Vegas where we were at a super zoo, the uh, the country's largest uh, in the U.S., largest pet expo, which they say it's probably one of the biggest in the world. And we got to see uh, Nicole Ellis from, from the pack out there and uh, got to meet with some old sponsor friends from the pack. So it was really, really cool. And uh, you and Libby definitely need to come out here. You can stay. We'll go out there and hang out in Vegas and take it all in. It's a pretty good time out there. Yeah, I do. We definitely want to. And uh, also, like, I know you're big into your hunting. And Libby, I don't know if I ever told you this, Brian. Libby's really like, you wouldn't have her down as being into this, but she's really into uh, Steve Stephen Ranella's show, uh, Meat Eater. Meat Eater. Yeah, yeah. so she's yeah, yeah. always watching that. So uh, I think I think we'd be quite keen to to see what you do in in that area. Yeah, that would be good for you guys to come over here in like uh, the end of October, first of November, when we start getting calls to go track uh, wounded deer. You guys can get an up the whole totally different aspect of how dogs are tracking these animals and how and what they do. I mean, a lot of it is natural for Dixie because that's her breed. But I still had to do some training at first, you know, on the on the, they have to be on a leash here in the United States and most in most states to be able to track a wounded game, wounded game. So it's really pretty cool. You guys have seen her in TV mode and that type of stuff. 
you've never seen her in deer tracking mode. She's a totally different dog. She's not all huggy, feely, kissy. She's barking, she's pulling, she's jumping on the deer when she sees it. And that's what you want. You want your dog to have different different modes. When I put that vest on her that's set up for tracking with the bell on it, it's all stinky and dirty and she knows what we're gonna do. And she flips the switch and turns into a different dog, which that's what you want out of your out of out of your dog when you get to that, when you go to do different things yeah. like that. And even with her therapy dog vest, she knows we're gonna go kiss babies and do some, take some photos and that type of stuff. But when I put that stinky tracking vest on, she flips the switch. It's a different dog. Yeah, this is, I'm really curious to talk to you about this kind of stuff because I think uh, it's really interesting because it's not something that we really have. We have a totally different hunting culture in the UK, you know, where people use spaniels and Labradors and stuff like that, but but no one really uses coonhounds for anything. Um, so that was one of the things that was, quite cool actually when we did come over to america was meeting meeting dixie and then also meeting kipo because obviously uh chisholm did, does a lot of the hunting as well um so can you tell us a little bit about like what what does a coonhound do for people that don't really know so so blue tip coonhounds in america they were bred to to track big game but mainly to track raccoons there's a big raccoon culture, I guess you would call it, where, where guys will go out and they'll put like a GPS collar on their dog, or some guys do it old school. They just listen for their dog. They turn their dog loose in a woodlot and they wait for them to bay, which means they're they're at a tree. They've treed a raccoon. When they start baying, they can see they can tell the different tone in that dog's voice and they know when that dog is treed. And then they'll run to the woods and find their dog and the raccoon would be up in the tree and that's when they'll harvest the raccoon or they'll pull the dog off and give it a reward if they're just training. But that's, that was the whole purpose of, of these dogs, you know, early on in America was to, to hunt and track raccoon. But now a lot of guys are using them to track big game, like deer, mountain lion, bobcats and that type of stuff. And, and that's what I do with Dixie. You know, we track, we track wounded deer and we also find antlers that fall off the deer every year called, they call it shed hunting with dogs. So, and that's a big thing too here now. So, and it's, it's all pretty much the same scent. All, all that is, is deer hair and deer blood. That's what compromises an antler. And that's what you're training your dog to track on a deer is, is the blood and stuff. But the, the big thing with teaching them to track deer is at an early age, you want to introduce them to some deer blood, some deer hair and a hoof off that same deer. Because that deer, a deer that has been shot, because that deer had put off a certain scent that you want your dog to, to be keen on. And what, what a dog does when they track a deer, the reason a hunter calls us, they've lost the blood trail. So that's why it's important at an early age when you teach your dog on the blood. You know, at first I just let her chew on some deer hide in the yard and then I'll drag it around the yard and let her track it and find it like a little game of hide and seek with it. And then she starts getting the idea. Then you can start laying more elaborate tracks and then you can get to where you can drag it lift it for a while, walk about 20 yards and lay it down again. So they have to search and, and you'll learn that too. When your dog's correcting itself, it gets off the track and it starts doing little circles till it picks the scent up again. And you're teaching that at an early age. And eventually what you want to get to is just using the hoof, no blood, no fur, just the hoof. And they make contraptions that fit on your shoe or you can mount a hoof. So that hoof steps everywhere you step. And there's a gland in between that hoof that the dog picks up on. And if you introduce that at an early age, you know, all the parts off that deer, when you go to track in real world situations, you know, 
that dog will stay on that trail of that deer that was shot at that spot, even if another deer crosses that trail, because it's gotten its head. I'm looking for this particular deer that put this particular scent off. So it all starts at an early age. Yes, you can teach them at an older age, but it's so much easier as a puppy to get them going and, and let them know what they do. And uh, one of my biggest training tools that you can use with any type of scent work, even you guys out there can use, I like using the chuck it stick. I'm sure you guys have the chuck it stick over there. You put the tennis ball in the end and you can throw that ball really far. Well, I have a friend that invented a scent here that's in deodorant stick form. And he's got deer blood and he's got deer antler and he's got grouse and pheasant and rabbit and all that different types of scent. I put that on that ball and I can just go in my yard and play with it. I can throw it. So she's always got that deer scent on her mind. And then occasionally you can go to a place and throw it in the woods where they can't see it or tall grass and make them use their nose to find that ball and bring it back to you. That's the, that's the number one training tool that I have. And I try to teach other folks is to use that stick because you're not touching it. You're not contaminating it with your scent. It's all about them finding that ball and using their nose to find it. So there's, there's a lot of people overthink this. It's really pretty, scent work is really pretty simple. It's just learning your dog and how to read your dog, which, you know, we got to see that firsthand on the pack with, you know, like Lucy and Duchess. They're, she never done anything like that. You know, Jackson, Vanny, all, all of them. I mean, Keepo and I were the only ones that did the scent stuff before. So we kind of knew what to do. But to watch those folks learn how to do scent work, it just goes to show you that anybody can do this. And it doesn't have to be hunting involved. You can do scent work in your house with the with the birch oil like we use, you know. So, it, and, and it's good for your dog. It's a good stimulant. But I like to hunt. So, this comes in handy for us and for my friends and anybody else around here that knows us that needs us to find a deer for them. So it's really just another aspect of your dog that all dogs are bred to, to hunt something. It's just a matter of what you want to do with it. If you want to track an animal or you just want to do scent work around your house. What kind of length of track do you typically do when you, when you go out? Like when, like operationally, you call it, you know, when you're actually called out, like what, what's the kind of like average length of a track? Average length is probably, it could be anywhere from, you know, 400 yards in thick brush where they can't see the animal to a mile or two. You know, the last track we did last November, the deer was shot in the liver and liver shot deer usually take about eight to nine hours to, to expire. So we bumped it out of its bed after about 500 yards at noon. We started about nine o'clock in the morning and we went back and looked at the trail cameras and this deer was literally walking 10 minutes ahead of us on every camera. So once we realized what was going on, we backed out. And I looked at I looked at the wound bed and I could see where the blood was at. And I could tell it was a little far back, which to me, with my experience, that that meant to me that it was probably a liver hit. We needed to wait a while. So we waited another three to four hours. At this point, it had been about eight hours. Went back out, started at that bedside. And once they jump out of their bed, they typically don't bleed a whole lot after that. So we tracked this deer another 600 yards to that time of year, it's the mating season. So deer will make a scrape on the ground with their paws and they urinate in it. Well, this buck was doing that, but every time he would stop, there was one little or two little drips of blood in it. So once we got about 400 yards and found that first scrape, I'm like, hey, this is your deer, but he's making scrapes. So I don't know how wounded he actually is, but I still think, you know, it was a liver shot and always Never doubt your dog is the biggest thing you have to learn when tracking an animal. Because it's not you. It's all about your dog. If your dog still says it wants to go, you go. Dixie still wanted to go. We were to the point where we weren't sure 
I said, hey, let's follow her some more. We followed her down to the bottom of the ravine and the deer's expired down there in the creek. The hunter never would have found it without Dixie. We had yeah. pretty much just one speck of two, two drops of blood after that bed, after that, you know, the, the wound bed. And that's just, that just goes to show you always trust your dog. And that's the biggest thing with scent work is, is reading your dog and knowing how to read her. Yeah, that's a really like classic saying in the dog training world as well is when it comes to this scent stuff is trust your dog because that seems that's probably the most common mistake is people like try think that they know better than the dog and they think, no, it couldn't have gone that way. And then they will pull the dog off of the track, uh, you know, and, and inevitably the dog will have been right. <laughs> yeah, this nose is always right. Yeah. Yeah. So how does it work, Brian? Like, how does that work? Do you obviously, I assume that your name is about town, people can phone you up, but like, do you like, how do, do people pay you for that service? Or like, do you like, what does that, well, I don't understand. How, how does that work? So how, how this is, is there, there's a, the guy that pretty much, there's a book out there. It's called uh, tracking, tracking deer with dogs or something like that. But the gentleman who started that, his name was John Jehenneke. So they call his book, pretty much the Bible of blood tracking or any kind of scent work. If you want to learn good scent work, you read this book. Unfortunately, the gentleman passed away two years ago, but he started a club in the United States called United Blood Trackers. And I think we might have members over in the UK, but it's called United Blood Trackers. It's unitedbloodtrackers.org if you want to go learn more about them and, and find that book. But they have a registry for trackers in the United States. So anywhere you're at in the United States, whether you need a, a bear track, a deer, an elk, caribou, whatever type of big game animal it is, you go to unitedbloodtrackers.org, you put in the zip code of where you're at, and phone numbers will pop up for all the trackers within your area that will come to you. But with Dixie and I, that helps us a lot too, but she's so well known from other stuff, from our appearances we do at outdoor shows and other trade shows and just being social media kind of famous, I guess now, people automatically call me. So I spend most of my time, if I can't get to a track, I'm like a, a dispatcher. I'm calling my buddies around different areas that I know are good trackers and saying, hey, can you go get this track? Can you do this track? Hey, this guy's got this situation. And then another big aspect of it is interviewing the hunter. I don't want to go to just some random track. A lot of times guys are shooting these deer in the shoulder, you know, far forward. And if it's with an arrow, those deer typically don't, don't, don't die. So a lot of times if we can uh, assess that it's a shoulder shot deer, we want to attempt it because we got so much other stuff going on. So we also try to help the hunter in that aspect to give him, it's it's not all about finding the animal. It's about peace of mind, knowing that the animal will live and it's not suffering and that type of stuff. So it, there's a lot more to it than finding a dead deer or, or a dead big game animal. It's it's more about peace of mind for the hunter and uh, you know assuring that the animal isn't suffering. With Dixie, did you like have to select her from like a a breeder that breeds for this deliberately, or like how how selective do you have to be with with finding a good breeder? Well, I had a game plan when I started this. You know, my I had the house fire, my dogs passed away in it. Since you bring that up, Brian, maybe maybe you can tell that story because because that's that's you've got a lot of stories, Brian, and and I've got a lot of stories and, you know, and unfortunately Amazon, they cut out my house fire story, which is the biggest part of my life, which is what led me to, to Dixie, you know, and they cut that all out. I'm assuming it was because it's, it's too sad or whatever, but in uh, 2012, I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, just outside of Indianapolis in 2012, I had a house fire and I had three dogs. One was a German short haired pointer. 
and the other two were some kind of hound mixes. But the middle one, she had blue tick and German shepherd in her. And I always noticed how real loving she was with people and kids and that type of stuff. So I always kept that in the back of my mind about maybe the next dog I get, I'm going to look more into the hound, you know, the hound breed to do different stuff with. But I was, I drive a semi, I was on the, I was pretty far up north of state. I was about an hour away from home and my neighbor called and said, Hey, there's something wrong with your house. There's a burn mark on the side. I smell smoke. And I'm like, Hey, kick in the back door, break the window, whatever you got to get my dogs out of there. And I turned my semi around and drove straight home. But before I could even get home, uh, they had called me back and said, Hey, the fire department's here. It's too late. Your dogs, your dogs didn't make it. They died of smoke inhalation. They found them upstairs. So I came home to all my friends and family being here outside and trying to console me. And I wanted to see my dogs. They had them out back. They had them under sheets. It was uh, probably the hardest, hardest day of my life because those are my kids, you know, so just devastating. But I, I tried. It took me a while to deal with. It took me two years to actually get another dog. So shortly after we get I get I'm starting to get through that. I get my house rebuilt. I move back into my house. It's hunting season. I was filming for an outdoor show. And at lunchtime, I needed to cut a limb down off one of my trees to get it out of my way. So I climbed up my tree without a harness and I slipped and fell. No cell phone, nobody with me. And if I didn't make the decision to get up off the ground and crawl out of the woods, I would have laid out there and died. So I got to the hospital eventually. The the county highway department had seen me. I was out. I finally crawled out to the roadway and they seen me and called the ambulance and two weeks in the hospital, broken ribs, collapsed lung, all that kind of stuff. And all I can still think about is losing my dogs. I need to do something positive in their memory. So I came up with a plan in the hospital room, in my hospital bed to get a, get a dog, train it to be a therapy dog. I wanted to help veterans. I wanted to help sick kids. I wanted to help anybody I could help, but I also thought it'd be a good idea to get a dog that I could track deer with or track big game with and find antlers because that's what I like to do on the side. So I did a lot of research and I found that everybody led me to this guy in South Carolina that had the old school bloodline of coonhounds. A lot of the, the coonhounds in the northern part of the United States, the old school is bred out of them. What I mean by old school, they have the longer ears in the south, which if you don't know anything about scent work with dogs, long ears means a better scent dog because those ears on the ground help keeps that scent in their face. So I wanted the old school look. I wanted the, the houndier looking face and the longer ears. So I was led to this guy in South Carolina that had a very reputable kennel. I did a, a lot of research about him. He had a, just had a litter, so I reached out to him. He, his dogs had good demeanor to be around kids and people, which was what I wanted for therapy work, and they're phenomenal trackers. So I reached out to him, and uh, we we talked back and forth for a month or so, and he had a litter, and uh, I said, hey, I want to get I want one of your pups. So I picked out a female out of the lineup. My friend lives in North Carolina. I'm about 12 hours away from this guy. So my friend was going to go pick up the puppy. And, and deliver to my house. I was gonna have a big party at my house. We was gonna have, I had said I had a big secret announcement. Everybody thought I was gonna propose to my girlfriend and I was gonna <laughs> introduce this new puppy. That was what was gonna happen. So my buddy gets down there and he goes, hey, we got a problem. The puppy you picked out, he's already gave away on accident. He has one female left. I said, I don't wanna see her, that's my dog. And that's how this all started. You know, it was kind of fate from the get go. And now, you know, we started helping out, you know, a local veterans organization. And I taught her how to pray next to veterans for a photo op and with kids. And that's how everybody started calling her the praying dog. 
So it kind of stuck. And now she's known as Dixie, the praying dog. And we started helping all these veterans organizations out. Then it led to the uh, casting agency for Amazon Prime. And that's how we met you. And we got to be on this amazing TV show with you and travel the world. And it's opened up so many doors from the tragedy I had with the house fire and the tree stand fall. And, and instead of sitting around and, and crying about things, I wanted to do something positive out of it and in memory of my dogs. And if you remember, I was saying the middle dog had blue tip coonhound in her. I flashed back to that moment thinking about how she was with kids. And I was like, I want a blue tick. And that's what led me to, to this, you know, that's how, that's how it all started just from something so tragic is turning something so great now. You mentioned earlier about when we were doing like, um, like, I don't know what they ended up calling it officially. I remember at one point we were referring to it as boot camp, but I feel like they maybe changed that. Like, but you know, like that training period that we had essentially before the show, um, and you mentioned that you and Chisholm were like the only people that had experience with scent work. And that was, I feel like it's funny because out of all the things we did, I feel like the scent work was the thing that really like brought people together the most and people really seemed to enjoy the most as well. And, and yourself and Chisholm were like giving people help as well, which was really nice. Um, and very like, but I think it was a good way of like people building relationships. And that was, that's something that I think is one of the nice things about dog training is when you have like a group of people with similar aims all meeting up and just doing stuff together. And uh, I don't know, it's just really, it's just really sweet. And I think with scent work, it's like, especially like satisfying for dogs, because as you said, it's like what they're made to do essentially you know, in whatever form that you, you end up doing it, obviously for the show, we, we used birch oil, um, which was something that we could then put onto like items wherever we were around the world and we could have the dog search for them. So it's just something that was very convenient. Um, and also very easily available because in America they use it for scent work competitions and stuff like that. Yeah. That, that boot camp was, was super cool. That was kind of the, the moment for, the other contestants that had never done scent work before to be like, man, this is, this is real. Brian and Dixie and Kipo and Chisholm, we, we, there's no way we can compete with them. And then after a couple of days, a couple three or four days, like, wait a minute, we're learning this. Our dogs are learning or figuring out how to do this. And that's why I like sharing the scent work with non-hunters. Hey, you can do this in your house. If it's too hot to run your dog outside, do some scent work in the house, teach them to smell this and find it around your house and we'll start with treats. High treats are in your house, you know, anything to stimulate their mind and take a little energy off of them if you can't get outside. So I try to relay, relay that to a lot of folks. And that's what happened there during that doggy boot camp, that I guess is what you want to call it, the final audition phase of that, to see the other dogs come out of their shell and, and be able to do the scent work and then to see their owners, how proud they were of them. That was super cool. And for somebody like me and Chisholm, we want to help people teach their dogs to do that type of stuff because we know what it does for your dog and what it does for your relationship because before the show, you know, Dixie and I spent a lot of time together training to do scent work and the obedience for the therapy dog work. And Chisholm's the same way. He doesn't do therapy dog work with his dog, but he tracks a lot. That's a lot of time you spend with your dog, a lot of bonding time. Where the other people, they have a dog that's in their house and they might play fetch with it occasionally. But if I can teach them to do scent work with their dog 
and they they like it and they pick it up, they're going to do it a lot more. And that's just going to strengthen that bond with them and the dog. Just another thing that they can do together. Am I misremembering this? I know that this was definitely the case with Derby, but did did Dixie learn to hold in boot camp as well? Yes. So Dixie did learn hold in boot camp because I was told that was <laughs> something that she had to really learn. And that's, you know, I used your tips a lot. You know, we didn't have access to our phone, so I couldn't go back and research a bunch of stuff. I had to remember uh, the friend of mine that invented that scent for the deer tracking. He also invented, he's one of the the, the godfathers of uh, shed dog hunting with dogs. And he invented a rubber antler that you teach your dogs with. To, they learn how to pick that antler up when they're puppies so they don't get poked by a real antler and it scares them. So if they learn how to pick up that rubber antler, how to, how to like she'll walk up to an antler and she'll kick it and flip it so it's upright so she can grab it better. She learned that as a puppy using that rubber antler. So I had the flashback in my mind to remember how he was teaching dogs how to hold. And we literally practiced that every minute we were in that hotel room. If we weren't sleeping, I was practicing hold with her or tug because that's something she didn't do before the show. But by the end of the audition phase, you've seen what happened. She was doing it. She was holding. She was tugging, not to the extent that I wanted it, but she was still tugging enough to get us through that. And it was a lot of work, but that's what it takes to get your dog to do stuff. You have to put in a little effort to teach your dog to do stuff. You're, these dogs will do anything. Dixie was four years old filming the show. And the old saying is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's not true. All these dogs learn something new in that two-week time, time frame. And I hope that's what the show can convey to people. You can teach your dog to do anything. We're getting ready to film another movie in the fall. And I had, I had to teach Dixie how to play dead. I just taught her to play dead last week. She's seven years old. So oh, what I do cool. with that, I teach her with her food. Before I feed her, I make her do something that I want her to learn. Then I release her to eat. So for about two or three days, I forced her down. I'd say dead dog and push her down in that position. And then I would release her to eat. Now when I get her food out, she's upstairs in the lane into my stairs playing dead before I even get her food out. So... <laughs> And it used to be she would pray before I would eat. And she would still do that if I told her to. But it's just, you can teach dogs to do anything at any age. It's just a matter about how you go about doing it. And most of these, most dogs are food motivated. And you can do it all with food for the most part. Yeah, the tugging thing is interesting because I don't know if this is, I imagine this is kind of universal, but I know like with a lot of hunting dogs, people don't want the dog to tug, you know, and, and they don't encourage that. So I can see why that would be challenging for you, but, but, there were challenges in the show which involved tugging. Um, I, I'm trying to remember which ones you did, Brian, because obviously you split into two teams. The one in Italy that we had to let Ace just dominate, where we had to pull the little signs to line yeah. all the letters up. Because the way I went about teaching Dixie to tug, I added retrieving to it. If I wanted to tug something, I would lay it on the ground and tell her to go get it. If it was connected to something, that way she would pull it and it would do the same purpose as tugging. And that's how that was with that, with that challenge. They had, I would tie her little tug toy on the end of that. I'm like, all right, go get it, bring it here. So she would grab it and pull it to me. So technically she was retrieving, but actually she was tugging to get that, the letter lined up. But in that challenge, it took her too long to get set up. But Ace was dominant at that. Ace was probably the smartest dog I've ever seen in my life. And I'll, I'll tell Mark that to this day. It's sad that Ace is gone, but man, that was the most amazing dog ever. And he, he dominated that challenge because his his tugging his tugging and pulling was just phenomenal. Yeah, it's actually kind of sad to think about. Uh, if people follow Mark on uh, social media, they'll know that that Ace isn't with us anymore. You're right; he was an incredible dog, and and also 
Mark, I feel like from the beginning, he it was he had a good personality for the show in, in terms of he was like you, Brian, he was training like all the time. You know, he was his sort of person that did the work, you know, like there's there's people in the room that that, you know, when there's a spare minute, they're not doing stuff. And and then there's people that are actually putting in the work like, but, you know, some people it's just fact of life, isn't it? Some people work harder than others. Right. You know, I, I wanted to make sure I made the show. So, and you, you know, you knew that I was probably already in and going to make it, but how nervous, how worried was I? I'm like, when they split us up into different groups, I'm like, what does this mean? Am I on the bottom now? And I remember, I remember talking to you about that and you're like, absolutely not. You're not, this is just, we're just dividing rooms up. Don't you're overthinking stuff. You're, you're worried about stuff too much. You just keep doing what you're doing. You're fine. But I was worried nonstop that I wasn't going to make it, you know, and you had more confidence in me than I did. No, I think you were definitely a favorite um, from the beginning. Um, it was always very difficult during the show and and even after to some degree about what we could and couldn't say because of, you know, the rules around making a TV show. Um, I think in the early days, there was definitely like, it was brought up at one point, like, uh, you know, should we, like, it was almost like, put like portrayed as like a binary choice like should we have brian or chisholm because they kind of have the same niche like they come from this hunting background and i think all of us as trainers were like what are you talking about you have to have both they're both so yes. good and that's that's funny too because we weren't allowed to talk to each other during that time frame of the two-week doggy boot camp and uh at one point chisholm and i went to the restroom at the same time we took the dogs out to, to go potty at the same time and whenever you go outside, I mean, this is stuff that people at home don't get to see. So once we go outside, we have a person, a production assistant with each one of us that prevents us from talking to anybody. Well, something happened. Our production assistants got to talking to each other or something. And Chisholm and me and Dixie and Kipo are pretty close to each other. And Chisholm goes, hey, uh, is that Dixie, uh, the praying dog? I'm like, how do you know that? He goes, I'm a member of United Blood Trackers also. So he was a member of that club that we were discussing earlier. So he was aware of who we were because she was pretty popular on there just from some other stuff that she had done. So I told him at that point, I said, Hey, do not breathe a word of that to anybody. Don't tell anybody that we know each other. And he's, even though we didn't really know each other, we, he knew who we were. Keep that to yourself because they might send one of us home because of that. So we kept it quiet until we officially made it. You know, so I thought that was just pretty wild of all these dogs that everybody looked at two dogs are in the same tracking club together are going to be on the same TV show. So it was, it was pretty wild, but I'm glad we, we both made the show. You know what I mean? Cause it, it could, if they would have found out more about us, they probably would have sent one of us home just because we knew each other kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think that could have been a possibility. There were definitely like, I was never involved in all like that kind of stuff. You know, like I said, it was my first time like making a TV show as well. And, um, you know, they have very, you're right, Brian, that's something that people don't know if they haven't really been in that world, They're, especially when it's a competition show, there are really, really strict rules. And, you know, you're prevented from speaking to each other when you're not filming. And, uh, you know, you're not allowed to have your mobile phones and all of that kind of stuff. And it was for me, I guess, like, I think sometimes the, uh, the the casting producers probably <laughs> got annoyed with me and Nicole probably as well like because maybe we were like we almost kind of we worked so closely with their team inevitably because of our role we had to be with you guys all the time 
Um, but we weren't casting producers. So maybe we were like the soft touch or something. Like we didn't really like, you know, it doesn't matter to yes. me whether you guys are talking. Like I don't like, and and it feels weird for me to try and stop you guys from talking. Well, we were, in, we were told that the reason that is like that, they don't want anything like that off camera. They want all of our first interactions on camera, which is what that was when we ziplined from the clock tower from Back to the Future and got in a military vehicle. That was supposed to be the first time we ever talked to each other. And we told our stories. And that's where I told the story for the first time on camera about my house fire and all that. And that was the first time it was cut out. Cause I told that story every day for 54 days and they cut it all out. But that they wanted all that on camera. And I get it, it makes better TV content and stuff like that. So I mean it, it's a TV show, so they've got to get content and they don't want us ruining the content by not getting it on camera. So I get it. I can't imagine how many hours of footage they must have though. Like I think that when you when you've recorded that much footage, you you're gonna cut out so much stuff. And Wouldn't actually see all that footage and the pictures that they took. I mean, it's yeah. gone forever. Nobody will ever see it. It's locked away somewhere, nobody will ever see it again. Yeah, I know that's pretty crazy to think about. And for me, what I found more frustrating about making a TV show is I felt like we spent so long training things that oftentimes would just be uh, like, you know, like like action shots in a movie where they would just sh cut for it. I'd be like, well, no, like we spent ages teaching the I dogs to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, going back to teaching dogs, uh, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, it kind of goes the opposite way for the show, too. I've taught this girl not to dig because she's a hound. If I didn't teach her not to dig when she was a puppy, my backyard looked like a moonscape. So for the pack, we had to teach them to dig. And if you've seen the first episode, they had to dig up the key in the beach and all that. And I had to retrain her to, to allow her to dig. The first couple of times she was like looking at me, you really want me to dig? I'm like, yes, let's go dig it up. So then when we got back, we had to get back out of that process of teaching her not to dig again, which she's, she's fine with. But it's just funny, the stuff that we had to teach him that I never thought in a million years, I'd be teaching my dog to do. I didn't think yeah. I'd ever teach her to redig. Yeah, I know. Right. And you know, one of the things that actually did get cut from the show, and I was really surprised they cut this from the show is, um, because this was something that was spoken about a lot of the time. And it was like a really sweet moment because you had, I remember in your like casting interview or whatever, you were talking about like, oh, we're going to beat these like city slicker dogs, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you ended up uh, really liking um, uh, Charlie, the. Yeah, I think Char Charlie I was my favorite say, dog. Yeah, yeah, totally. Charlie and Donna, who went out in uh, Mexico, which by the way, seemed like an injustice because. That he was brilliant. Like he was a really good dog. He, uh, he had the heart of a big dog, is what I told Donna. And he did. He had a heart of a big dog. Even though he was in his little body, he acted just like these big dogs. And and that was seen on the other thing we filmed. We filmed a thing called Road Dogs for Dog TV. We took this RV across the country and we stopped in Colorado at this lake. Charlie's rolling in the mud. He's running out in the lake and just doing everything these other dogs were doing. But I yeah, I I was bonded with Charlie and, and Donna and I don't care what type of dog it is. If that, if that the personality that Charlie had that won me over for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and then I even might've, I might've shed a tear in Mexico when she left too. I don't know if they caught it, but I was pretty upset. <laughs> no, I didn't want to out you, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was pretty upsetting to see them go home. Yeah. I was amazed that they didn't show that. And, and also like, 
I think it was a shame that like all of the s- smaller dogs went out like early in the show because uh, I don't think that was necessarily indicative of like their skill level because I thought Charlie was like a really good he 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 was really good at scent work like he he had a lot of skills um i think sometimes there is there is an element of of luck or and there's also another thing brian right is the person the person makes a big so, difference and that's what i try to tell people during filming this show your dog is only as good only as fast only as smart as the handler you know these dogs can Dixie's smarter than me by far I got a bad cab ride and I gave him bad directions. That's not her fault. That's my fault. Same way with all the dogs that went home for the most part. Either they got some bad luck or the the handler did something wrong. It's not the dog's fault at all. It's it was all these dogs were only as fast as only as smart as the handler. And that's that's the best way to explain that show. Well, you know, this is another thing. These are details you don't necessarily get in the show, but when you when you did go out, Brian, in Switzerland, um, even though you had made that mistake in the directions. You actually all you um you know you caught up a lot and Dixie was the fastest on the challenge, even though you you lost. She was the fastest to actually complete the challenge. Yeah, she found where Vanya's person was hiding. She found where Chelsea's person was hiding and my person within like two or three minutes. Yeah. So if if, if flash I flash back to this moment all the time. I told myself in that hotel. If I come down first, I'm getting in the second vehicle. All I have to do is follow the person in front of me because this dog is going to beat either one of those dogs in a scent challenge. I knew it was a scent challenge. So, but when I came down, I didn't see anybody else around. It was just me. So I got cocky. I got in the first first vehicle, the first taxi. I said, let's go. Here's where we're going. I showed him that gondola. He typed it in. I said, you know where you're going? I didn't know it was a gondola station, but I kept calling it a train station, which Still shouldn't have mattered. He still should have put in the thing right. And I should have double checked. And I took off. When I should have went with my first, you know, plan just to be second and just follow somebody. All I got to do is beat one of them. And I know I can. And I did. And I got cocky. And we went home and switched one. You know, another, uh, there was another situation which very almost happened like that in London. And you had obviously, you weren't there at this point. But, uh, but Mark was sick in London. He, I think he had food poisoning or something like yeah. that. And he got very close to being eliminated um, by Lucy and Duchess, it would have been by. Um, he was very far behind on on the herding. That's like, it was basically kind of very similar to the soccer challenge, really, but they had to like herd the balls into a certain area or whatever. and uh, And thankfully... Ace really saved him in that yep. in that episode and managed to do the challenge really quickly. And so he managed to overtake Lucy. Um, but wow, that was really close. That London episode is my favorite, even though I'm not in it, it's my favorite episode of the whole show because they tied in the the little walk where the Beatles walked across uh, what's it, Abbey Lane or whatever that is right there. They got to reenact that. They got to go to the top of the O2 arena. And me as a music lover, that would have been huge for me to be able to, to be in that point in, in music history and on top of the O2 arena where so many famous people have played at and just to be in that in London in general, man, I, I kick myself all the time. I'm like, if I would have done this one thing different, I would have been there. Or or to see Dixie and I walking walking the the uh the uh what do you call it, the the fashion thing they did 
you know, could you imagine me and Dixie walking out there with all the fancy clothes on and the, <laughs> for the fashion show thing? That would have been great for howling the whole time, but it is what it is. I mean, I'm not, I'm not upset about anything that happened in that show other than my mistake and the cab driver's mistake, but it was an experience to be able to, to do all the stuff I did and the doors that it's opened. And I still ride off that every day. I mean, just at Super Zoo, I'm walking around with Dixie and, hey, tell me about Dixie. Well, we're on a TV series on Amazon Prime. And that automatically gets people's interest. And that helps with endorsement deals and stuff like that also. And then it's helped with our social media. So that show has helped in many, many ways. But uh, the big thing is the people that I've met that I'm still friends with, like you and Nicole, uh, Kentucky and Derby, uh, Lucy and Duchess. I never thought in a million years I'd be friends with them still because on the show, um, to me, I just didn't, we didn't click, you know, I just, something about Lucy, but now I can call Lucy, I call her every, every week we talk, you know, so, and Josh and Snow, we're still pretty close. So that's the biggest thing out of the show is, is the friendships that we've taken out of it and the experience. Not too many people can say they've done what we've done, you know, even you, I mean, though you didn't have a dog with you, you were still there and you got to experience it. So that's something to say right there. We're, we're one of, 12 people that travel the world with our dogs and film this amazing TV show and zip line out of the clock tower from back to the future and all this wild stuff, you know? So it's really something to be proud of. And I don't know why some of the other contestants that were there don't talk about it that much, but to me, I'm super proud of it and, and what we got to do. Yeah. I, I've have a lot of friends that have done television and, and have had bad experiences and have really not enjoyed it. And I feel like I had a really good experience and I, I really loved the pack. And I don't think I fully like appreciated it until it was over. Like I, I kind of like, I really missed it afterwards. And I think also we took it, well, I took it a little bit for granted. I know this maybe doesn't apply so much to you, Brian, but like, you know, the whole crew was so adamant that this was going to be a show that was going to continue on and on and on. And I, I, I think a big element was obviously the pandemic that we just had no yeah who could have predicted that the pandemic i mean the pandemic and then uh amazon didn't really market it the best they could have i don't think you know but uh the pandemic really affected everybody's like well everybody's at home and they can watch tv well we needed to be able to get out and go to these different back to these countries we filmed in and do the media like we were supposed to have done and i think that really would have helped a lot more too that would have helped with the marketing aspect of things better also but the pandemic had just shut everything down and we just couldn't, we couldn't promote it the way it needed to be promoted. And, and then PETA tried to say that they, they had it shut down because Dutch's wasn't breathing right. That's a lab. My buddy's lab just retired from TSA as a, as a bomb sniffing dog. He's got the same issue. All these labs have the trachea issue where they breathe heavy. And PETA's trying to say that the dog was stressed. I'm like, Dutch's did that from day one. So just a bunch of different elements. And some people think they did this and did that, but it boils down to the pandemic bottom line. Yeah, that was a big thing. I mean, the Peter thing, I don't really give any mind because I, I mean, I think it's pretty well known that they're just a terrible organization. Yeah. You know, um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, la the final episode, I wasn't really very involved in in the end because it was obviously filmed over in Utah. So anticlimactic. And I try to explain that to people. Hey, they had to rewrite this final episode. The final episode was going to be epic. We were all going to be in it. It was in Miami. It was going to be wild. It was going to be fun. But because of the pandemic, they just had to cut it to the three finalists, move it out in the middle of nowhere, totally rewrite everything. So it's very anticlimactic. That's why I say the London episode was the best episode out of all of them because it had everything in it, you know, famous places and scenes and 
epic challenges with Derby, you know, in the jail cell. And that oh, that's of stuff. one of my favorites. Just amazing, man. That was the best episode. And that's what was building up to the final episode until we got shut down and had to redo it. So, but it had so much potential. It's just, you know, a pandemic, man. What can you do? There's, I mean, it just, hopefully it's never happened again, but. I'm glad you brought up the jail cell thing because that was probably, uh, probably my favorite, like, I don't know, maybe you're going to, you might remember something that will change my mind, but that might be my favorite, maybe performance from a dog, maybe is a better way of putting it. Unbelievable what Derby did. I mean, yeah, the the, t- <clears throat> the tugging challenge for Ace was huge. <clears throat> it was even bigger for me because I was there witnessing it. You know, I was witnessing stuff off camera he was doing that only people get to, you know, folks at home only got to see on camera, but to see Derby do what he did and, see, and know how smart of a dog he is, that was incredible to, to just at the last minute, Kentucky says, Hey, pick that up for me. He got it and brought it right to him. I mean, that's phenomenal that he did that, you know, just a great, that was a great, great episode. And he wouldn't pick anything up either before, uh, before boot camp. So to go from not wanting to pick things up at all to be doing that challenge is like, you know, massive. Well, when we first got there and you, and you get to see everybody coming in the room for the first time, just like uh, Josh and Snow. Here he comes, bopping in, and Snow can't even walk on a leash. I'm like, I ain't worried about this guy. And then here come Kentucky and Derby, bopping in, like no care in the world. I'm like, we've got this. We're definitely beating this guy. Then he's getting on the bus at 6 in the morning to go to do challenges, and he's got a beer, and, you know, drinking, <laughs> a, uh, drinking a beer out of a bottle. And, I mean, every morning I'm like, what is going on? Why is this guy taking this serious? This is a big deal. And now they know how they are. I'm like, man, that's just who they are, you know? Just because it's all about perception, you know. I and, and me and Josh had this conversation. He looked at me like I'm this because you know Josh. If folks that don't know, Josh was a gay black dog groomer from Hollywood. So when he met me at the at the uh, training, I've got camo on. I'm wearing a bandana sometimes, and he's like, "Uh oh, this guy probably doesn't like black guys. He probably doesn't like gay guys." And I'm the type of person I treat everybody how you treat me. You're good to me. I'm good to you. And that's kind of something we all learned from the show. You can't judge a book by its cover, you know, and we all, that's why we all got, got along so good. Cause we all treated each other with respect. We didn't care who they were, what they look like, any of that, none of that mattered to us. And that's why we're, you know, most of us are still friends to this day. And that's what was cool about the show. Yeah. It was cool about the show. You're right. Because I think you're so right there, Brian, as well. I mean, this is maybe even bigger than the TV show, but like, I think a lot of times, you you know it's easy to like stereotype people and and be like oh wow i really would not get on with that person right and that's and- what josh said because josh gets you know, he's a he's a black he's a black man he and he's gay he gets stereotyped all the time but he did that to me and that upset him more than anything that he did to me what people do to him all the time and that's how we we bonded and really you know came together and, and became friends and we still talk all the time you know you know, none of that matters to me. You're good to me. You got a cool dog. He loves my dog. We love each other. And that's how it is. And that's that again, that's one of the big things I took from the show was friendship. So did you have a favorite challenge? Favorite challenge. But of course, all the scent work was fun. You know, the Switzerland challenge would, would have been cool if we didn't go home that time. But <laughs> um, favorite challenge. I definitely didn't like the running in Costa Rica. Um, running across the bridge in Costa Rica was pretty cool until I about pushed the camera guy over the edge. That that got me in trouble, but, um, 
I, I liked it all. It was all fun. I mean, you know, the, the tugging stuff was frustrating for me because of how we did things. So I couldn't set her up right to do it, but I thought they were all, all great. But the, the, the zip lining was fun. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call that a challenge though, because that was kind of, kind of how you had to set them up. But I would say my favorite moment for her and as a, as a dog dad was when I screwed up in the maze in Austria. I was right there at the podium. I didn't hear because she was barking so loud in the rules that the clue was elevated. All I had to do was walk up the steps and I had the clue, but I didn't know that. So I, I had to run back out and let Mark take over and he came back out and get it. And then later on, we had to find uh, Lucy's articles in the woods. And Dixie found those two articles right off the bat. I mean, just killed the challenge and brought us back. And I, I felt that that redeemed me for screwing up earlier in the May. So I would say Austria, where she found those clues in the woods that quick and really brought us back up to the to the top on that. That was one of my proudest, proudest moments in the show. I remember that because I remember you were just before that challenge, you were you were really <laughs> frustrated. Oh, I was I was pissed. <laughs> There's no if hands up butts or bad. I was mad at myself. And I was always like that playing sports. I'd get mad at myself, and then that would screw my performance up the rest of the time in basketball or soccer or whatever I was playing. And I was doing my best to try not to let it mess with me, but it messed with me the rest of the day. And I'm just glad that she pulled me out. You know, and it's just like Costa Rica, which is a big, I don't think folks realize how big of a moment that was for me in Costa Rica. They were telling me goodbye when we were in uh, um, the capital city, San Jose, when everybody, nobody could find the finish line. Remember that? We ran like eight miles that day. My, content, my other people, when they were passing me, they were like, hey, it was, it was great being in this challenge, being in this show with you. Uh, we hope we catch up with you after the show. Even the producers were coming. Man, you did a phenomenal job. Hate to see you go home because I was fit. I was 15 minutes behind everybody before I got to do my dance. But I didn't give up. I did my dance and we went out and we caught back up with everybody. And I don't know where I found it at, but I dug down deep. And even though I was about ready to die of a heart attack, I told myself, stick with these people. When you see the finish line, save your energy. Get to, You see the finish line, then just pass them up. And that's what I did. I got to the steps and I realized I, I was ahead of everybody and I was still going to be all right. And Mark was trying to be the first one across the finish line. I just let him go because I knew I was going to be all right. I come across that finish line and just collapsed and needed oxygen and everything else. But that was, that was a super cool moment for me too. And it's because of her. I didn't want to give up because of her. I looked down at her when I couldn't find the clue where to find the dancing area. I looked at her and I'm like, I can't give up. I got to go because she wouldn't give up. So that's why I kept going. Yeah. That challenge in Austria is the one I have the sign from I was telling you about. Yeah. I have the yellow yeah, sign. Yeah, the one was hanging in the woods somewhere, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. You said you managed to keep quite a lot of the props. Yeah. So I'm looking at the the gondola from uh, Switzerland. You want to see them real quick? I'll grab them. They're right here. Uh, Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Go yeah. ahead. It's just it might not play well on audio. <laughs> Stay right there. So yeah, here's the uh here's the gondola. Okay. Switch okay. on when I got eliminated. Here's the Costa Rica handkerchief. That building looked like two other buildings in town, so that's why we ran totally opposite way. And then here's the uh the barrel the dogs had to wear around their neck and switch on. Yeah, that's quite cool. So we weren't supposed to keep any of this, but I was keeping everything that I could. And if you can see my wall, I even have the some of the rules from the competitions up here. 
I have like the the postcard that Lucy or that uh, Lindsey Vaughn left us at, in Italy, inviting us to that dinner with her autograph on. I have it. I have the I have the actual note that says a change up was coming in Switzerland. I have all that stuff, all oh, her wow. little outfits. I kept it all. Yeah, you did a good job there. I I had to talk um, someone into letting me have the uh, the yellow sniffing zone sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I bought her all. I was, if you remember, I was buying Dixie stuffed animals in every country we were at. I still have all of them. They're all right here too. Yeah, that's a big part of my life. I mean, I wanted to make sure I kept everything. Like I said, this whole room is dedicated to the pack and some of the other TV stuff that she's done. But this is, this is it. I wanted to keep that stuff because it was a. That, to me, that was one of the biggest things that's happened in our life. You know. And that really brought us closer together, which is what the show was about, you know. And my life pretty much revolves around Dixie, you know. Mm. Every weekend we're doing appearances somewhere. I'm actually, you know, I'm paying my bills with her right now, you know, through social media and her appearance money. I never thought in a million years I'd be able to, to do that, you know. So it, it's it's pretty special, and that's why I want to keep all that stuff. Yeah, that's a really big thing for you, Brian, as well. I know because... Uh... You know, when you were on the show, you were when you driving HGVs. Is that right? I was driving them? a truck, a semi. Yeah, you guys call them. The, I bet that's a. I bet that's a British term. And then I was in an accident two summers ago, and I can't drive anymore because it messed my back up. Oh, I didn't and know then, that. So now I'm, I'm at a point in my life. I'm, I just turned fifty two weeks ago, so I've got a. I've got a this midlife, life changing career thing going on. And all this stuff is falling in line now with Dixie. I'm, I'm like, hey, I'm making some money here. So maybe this is happening for this reason. Hey, you're better than driving a truck. You should be out doing stuff with dogs and helping people and, and getting endorsements with these other companies to help get you out there and, and help other people. And that's pretty much what's been happening in the last four or five months is stuff has just been falling into place at the right time. You know, I've literally paid my bills. I'm not rich. But I'm barely paying my bills with what her and I are doing. And, and if I can continue to do that and then maybe get another dog down the road and go off the base that Dixie has built and continue it on, you know, because like, she's driving that little Jeep around, you know, get yeah. another dog and train it to drive a little Jeep around like her and just get, continue this on and her let, you know, as continuing her legacy and what she's the base that she's built. I could possibly continue to do this and not have to answer to anybody else again, you know, so. It's kind of funny how things happen, and and if it wasn't for the TV show, first and foremost, I mean that that's a big help. But everything that's happened, the fire, the near death experience, all that has led me here to this, and that all because of a dog. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, this is something that maybe we haven't really spoke about a lot, but you know, outside of the TV show, you do a lot of, you know, uh, as you said visiting people and kind of bringing like i don't know what what's the term for that it's not an assistance dog it's like a, in the uk dog. that's yeah in the uk we say we have like a term pets as therapy i don't know if you have that in, in america we call it therapy dogs and we do therapy dog visits you know we'll, we go to a lot of schools and dixie will drive her jeep into the school and and visit with the kids and i kind of tell them my story and i can talk to them about you know geography because we've been to all these countries We've been to Mexico and Costa Rica and into Europe and places like that that they've only seen in books. And I can tell them, hey, Dixie's been there. So we can do that type of stuff. We can talk about uh, bullying and how it's, how it's you should be nice to each other and treat everybody how Dixie treats people. She loves everybody. Just that type of stuff 
that you can all bring in from dogs to teach these kids and to show them the path that they should go on too. And, and, and it also goes to, to give them back and help them with charities. That's another thing I preach to the kids too. Hey, if you got an opportunity to help somebody, help somebody. You see a veteran wearing a veteran hat, go shake his hand. You know, you see a lady that needs help across the street, just simple stuff like that. We That's what we talk about when we go visit schools and we do a lot of funerals. I get asked to bring Dixie to funerals a lot, just to sit with the families at the casket for the showings. And um, we've done all kinds of stuff. We did six funerals last month in like two weeks. Wow. One that's of them was my mother's. One was my mother's and she actually participated in the services. She gave the prayer, the final prayer at my mom's service and then prayed in front of the casket. So that's just some of the stuff that she does. And, and she helps people in those moments. If I can have my dogs get you to smile for one second in the worst part of your life, I've done my job. And that's what we try to do. And that's what she's good at. I imagine that also she'll be really good for like children that are a bit scared of dogs. Very, very helpful in that aspect. A lot of kids with autism are terrified of dogs. So when I know there's an autistic kid, you know, I'll, I'll talk to the parent and ask him, you know, how are they with, with animals? Well, kind of iffy, you know, even not, even kids that are, there's nothing wrong with them. Some kids are scared of dogs. So when I hear that, I'll ask the parent, Hey, would you like to try to, to introduce them to Dixie? She's super calm. She'll sit there and she'll let them do whatever she wants to do. Cause she's so used to working with, you know, a lot of the autistic kids will come up and pull her ears and her tail and she doesn't care. She knows she senses and knows that people are different. That's just something you can't teach them. That's just something she knows. So when I talk to a parent that has a kid that's got a kid that's afraid of a dog, I'll have Dixie sit and I'll hold on to her, her leash or her collar and I'll let the kid come up and I'll, hey, touch her ears, pet her head. And Dixie might even give him a kiss on the cheek or something. She's real gentle. And a lot of times that helps. And that gets them over that, that point where, hey, I can, I can be around dogs. They're not as bad as what I think. But I always try to remind them also, don't walk up to just any dog and pet it. Always ask permission first because you never know that dog might not be friendly or it might be working. So always ask permission first. But it's good to, to have a dog where kids that are having some issues with dogs can see how gentle and how good they can be with them. Yeah, that was an important thing when we were casting the show as well. We were trying to make sure we selected for dogs that were friendly and were not going to become easily stressed or anything like that when we were when we were out and about. And that was never really a worry with Dixie. Like she's obviously you've you've socialized her really well, and you know she was never like a worry for any of that stuff, which is which is really good. And also, I think it probably make it would it's also like a bit of a competitive advantage as well because it means you don't have to worry about about that kind of side of things, you know? Yeah, it was just like the, the, you know, you're filming a TV show and I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but at one point during that, the two week uh, final audition, they would lock each one of us with our dog in a room and they brought in all the camera guys with the booms and the camera gear and your dog had to not attack them or be That's scared awesome. or run away. So they come in and I remember it was the guy with the dreadlocks, the fam- he's one of the most famous, uh, cameraman there is because he does survivor he's jeff probe's personal camera guy and survivor the guy that had the dreadlocks i know you know who i'm thinking of i know who you're thinking of i can't remember his name though i can't either but i've seen him on survivor a lot at the mm-hmm. finales because he's with jeff probes all the time so he come in there with, with the sound guys and all that and he's like all right he goes we're gonna do some things with it can you have her do some different stuff i'm like she'll do it on her own so he walked in and got the camera dixie dropped down and prayed then she stood back up and sat down and he's got the camera right in her face walking around he looked at me he's like 
she ain't afraid of the camera, is she? I'm like, we do so much stuff at these veterans events and stuff. There's so many cameras in her face all the time. And this is just, she's used to it, you know? And it's, and that goes back to the socializing and, and doing that type of stuff. If you want your dog to do something, you got to put them in that situation. My dog throws up and goes to the bathroom in the car. Well, keep doing it. It'll get used to that car ride and it'll get over it. Dixie did the same thing. Riding my Jeep at the top down is her favorite thing to do. So just doing things with your dogs and continuously doing them. Don't stop doing it because they don't like it when they're a puppy. They got to get used to stuff. And that's what the socialization is all about. Loud noises, being around a bunch of people, riding in cars, just different circumstances. And that's what makes them a better dog to take out in public because they're used to everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this this I remember this conversation was had literally when the show was just an idea, you know, and we were talking about how it could be possible. And one of the things that was really like top on the agenda was making sure that the dogs that were cast were resilient, like they weren't the kind of dogs that were going to get stressed out easily. Because of exactly what you said, all of the little things of like cameras being everywhere. And, uh, you know, also just like a lot of people just moving around and um, and and that's before you even get to the challenges, like you said, you know, the bridges in Costa Rica and um, and also a big worry was because no one had ever really done it before is, well, what's it going to be like when we fly the dogs all over the world? Like, are the plane journeys going to be really stressful? And that was a big reason that actually Amazon ended up flying us private for the whole thing which which is insane to reflect on that must have cost so much money but it was it was uh you know that was a, a part of the reason and uh and actually that was something that surprised me because that was like one of my big worries is like how will the dogs cope with flight and actually like i think i don't think any of the dogs ever really had an issue with being on a plane like most of them just slept through it I and mean, it was not really a concern Right. Well, the first time that we have, that Dixie has ever flown was when they flew us to that that boot camp, that two week audition in December 2019. That was the first time she ever flown. Amazon bought all three seats. I think we flew uh, American Airlines. I think it's who we flew. They bought all three seats and they instructed them that Dixie was allowed to sit in the seat. I didn't know. I thought when dogs flew like that, they had to sit on the floor or whatever. But Amazon had some deal worked out where they could sit on the seat. She got up in the seat and she sat there and watched everybody get on. Once the plane took off, she was looking out the window and then she lay down and went to sleep and slept all the way. And then we flew commercial the rest of the time, you know, or not commercial. We flew with Amazon on their plane the rest of the time. But when we got eliminated in Switzerland, we took the train to Paris and then we took a flight from Paris straight to Indy. That's a 10 hour flight. She slept the whole way until they brought my food out. She was under a blanket asleep and she popped her head up just to watch me eat. And then when I was done eating, she went back to sleep. So yeah. the 10 hour flight, she slept, you know, yeah. and I remember they wanted us to teach the dogs how to pee and go to the restroom on those little pieces of green carpet. Yeah. That wouldn't happen. These dogs walk around too much to do that. These, these dogs that were on the show are good, are good enough to where they, they could hold it that long. You know, 10 hours is the longest flight that you would do. But like you said, they all did great. I heard Derby had a little, he, he had an upset tummy on the way home from, uh, Paris or somewhere but other than that all the dogs did great yeah I mean it happens doesn't it um but even like little like the route for example had to be decided in such a way that you know when they first came up with a show they they hadn't got any of these locations in mind and there was talk of where we're gonna go 
And that was, in the beginning, that was why we didn't, like, we were trying to make the locations such that the dogs didn't have to travel, like, huge periods of time all at once, you know. So uh, you, so that's why they, they did, like, L.A. to Mexico to Costa Rica. And then it was a case of trying to get over to Europe. Once we got over to Europe, we at that point, we were in the coach, right, for most of it. And we're going yeah. for Europe in the coach. So we were avoiding flights. And that was deliberate because when we were planning the show, we didn't know if the flights were going to be hard for the dogs. Turns out that they weren't. I, I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, we didn't know how bad COVID was when we were in. A, we were leaving Florence, Italy, to go to Switzerland. And they were, we heard rumblings about this virus. And that was when Milan was really getting affected by it. So they did start playing in Florence. They chartered a bus. And I don't know if you remember this. I have a picture of this bus. Do you remember what the bus bus line was called? No. Remember, it's a pandemic, coronavirus pandemic. All these Americans trying to travel across, well, except for you, of course. All these Americans trying to travel across the border. The name of the bus lines was Corona Bus Lines. You're kidding me. I have a picture of this bus. I'll have to give it to you. Just, you can't make that stuff up. That's hilarious. I didn't know and that. And here we are trying to sneak out of the country. Well, not so much sneak, but get across the border the easiest way possible during this pandemic. And our bus lines is Corona bus lines with all these Americans. in. So just stuff you can't, you can't make up that just was just wild. And going back to the airplane stuff, you know, we, we flown all this time and I never had an incident like this happen and I've never thought much into it. But now that, now that it's happened to us, I don't know if you've seen my post on the way home from Vegas, Dixie got very ill at the Vegas airport. I went to the restroom and it was uh, 30 minutes before our flight. I come back out and sit down and she's on her bed, you know, having her own little place. All of a sudden, after the restroom, about 10 minutes, she started acting funny. She was standing up and her back end was hunched down. Her tail was down. She was wobbling and her head was doing, was bobbing back and forth. So I'm like, what is wrong with you? I checked her heart rate. Her heart rate was good. Her breathing was good. So I'm trying to figure out what's wrong. Like, is she dehydrated? What's going on? Because we're in Vegas and it's pretty dry out there. So I, I bring her over to get in line. And I put her bed down again. I tried to give her some treats. Well, I gave her some treats, some meaty treats, and she threw them up. Well, there was something in her throat I didn't recognize. So other people at that point recognized who we were and came over his head because they could see I was stressed. I mean, I'm in panic mode because I've got to decide to board this flight in 10 minutes or find a an Uber and find a vet and hope they'll take us in and hope that they can figure out what's wrong with her. Or do I assess that her vitals are good enough to get on this plane and just get her back to Indianapolis, which is a three-hour flight? So we decided as a group of us, that it was the right decision to get her on the plane. The crew knew what was going on. I put her bed down. She laid down. I covered her up and she slept all the way home. Consulting with my vet when I got home, all the symptoms coincide with THC poisoning. So we're thinking that she picked something up off the floor in Vegas that had an illicit drug in it and it got in her system. That's what kind of made her doing that. But that's things that we also don't think about when we travel with our dogs. Hey, some of these airports, especially places like Vegas, I mean, marijuana is legal out there. So you don't know what these, she's a hound. She's going to sniff stuff off the floor. She's going to pick food up off the floor. That's something you're not preventing unless you put a muzzle on them. And I really don't want to put a muzzle on my dog. So that's just another thing for people that like to travel with their dogs, not just in airports, but anywhere. You really need to be aware of what your dog picks up. off. It could be a discarded pill, it, uh, the THC, I mean, a chemical of some kind. Who knows what it could be? These dogs, if it smells good, they're going to try to get it. And she obviously got something that 
that made her ill, but I had to make a, I had to make a decision and, and get her on that plane. It was terrifying. So that's just yeah. something I want people to, I want to get out there for people. I'm going to start pushing this a little bit more for people to, to think about what their dog is picking up off the floor. And if you drop a pill or something, pick it up and throw it away. If you don't have a dog, even throw it away because you could be saving a dog's life. I've got friends that are canine handlers. They deal with this on a daily basis. They carry Narcan with them because the fentanyl problem is so bad in, in the United States now. These dogs are drug sniffing dogs or whatever. They could sniff that up and it could kill them unless they had Narcan with them. So it's just something for the average person to think about that travels with their dog a lot. Just jumping back quickly to the uh, the COVID situation as well. That was a weird, that was such a weird time because like we, when we were filming the pack until the very end, um, like COVID, it was going on. But for, for me, it felt like it was going on in the background. Like it was something that I heard vaguely being talked about. But uh, I think we were so much in our own like world about just filming a TV show that we, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the news. And also, I think for, it, when COVID first started coming out, it was like no one really knew the extent of what it was going to become. And it kind of felt like like it was easily dismissed. You know, it was like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just, a, yeah. I don't know. It just didn't see, we did, who could have predicted that it would have been right. such a big deal? And, and back to that bus ride, if you remember our, our three security guys, they specifically instructed that bus driver to absolutely... Do not stop in Milan. Please do not stop in Milan because that was the area that was affected the most all over the world at that point. And what did that bus driver do? He stopped at that truck stop in Milan and he got chewed out by the security guys because they told him, he goes, hey, I had to take a break. It's my time to take a break. And this is where I'm taking it at. And they're like, we instruct you not to stop here because of what's going on. And they wouldn't allow us off the bus or anything. They didn't want us to touch anything or be around anybody or anything. So they let him take his break and they got us out of there. But I remember that pretty, you know, pretty good too. Yeah, I don't remember that. Maybe, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it for me, it wasn't really until we got to Florida when COVID really started to impact us because that's when things started getting shut down. And I was at the India airport to fly to Miami. I was literally 10 feet from stepping on the plane when Sam called me. And he goes, hey, where are you at? I said, I'm literally walking onto the plane. He goes, get off of it and go home. We're done. I'm like, what? He goes, we're done. They shut the country down. And that was it. That was the last time I ever dealt with anybody from the pack was that phone call. Oh, that's a bit sad. You know, um, for for me, it was, we were doing the scouting of the locations um, in, in Florida and uh, we every country we would go to, we would have like a final scout. So, you know, the the crew goes to to all the locations that you're going to film at and just make sure everything is as you want it to be and we would go and see these locations and then we'd start getting phone calls oh this area is shut down this area is shut down they're pulling the permits you know and they were trying to like save the show and then at a certain point it just got to the point where no it called it a wrap this is not going to happen yeah and then uh, for me personally, I was staying at a different hotel because I was staying at the hotel with the cast and all of the crew were over in a different hotel. Uh, I was actually, we were, me and, and the cast and uh, and the security, we were um, actually right on, what's that really famous street in Miami? Like Ocean Drive, o- Ocean Drive, is it? Right on the beach? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so we were actually staying there, and it was Miami spring break, so it was crazy outside. And um, I had to go, like, 
get transport to go over to the cruise hotel. And Janet, who was one of the producers, said to me, are you, uh, like, what do you want to do? Like, you can either stay here for, you know, another few days and just go go home when you plan to originally, or we can fly you home now. And at that point, I didn't know if I was going to get home. Like, if I, I was worried that if I would have stayed there, that they would have stopped, like, the flights entirely and I would be stranded in Florida. So I ended up getting a flight there and then. Something else about that, when we were in Switzerland... I remember the crew, they were all friends with the people that, I mean, it was kind of the same production team that filmed the, filmed the Amazing Race. Kind of That's the right. same, they all had friends and they were kind of the same folks. Well, they were filming in Asia at that time when we were in Switzerland. And I remember them saying that they got shut down in Asia while we were in Switzerland and they got stuck over there for a long time. The crew did. I remember them talking about that too, just like in passing, I could hear them talking about that type of stuff. So just a pretty wild that we even got out of the, out of Europe back to the, back to the States, you know? Yeah, we were we were both unfortunate and fortunate with the timing. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah, it was a hell of a ride. It was a hell of a show. And I wasn't involved in the Road Dogs thing that you guys ended up doing. Like, how did that end up coming about? So they just kind of contacted you guys? Well, that was for Dog TV. It was kind of a kind of Lucy and I and Kentucky and kind of had an idea. We wanted to do something else. I'm like, man, it'd be cool to drive an RV across the country and somebody film it and maybe we get some sponsors for it. So Lucy took the, took the reins on that. She got all these sponsors. She got Zwe, um, all these other great sponsors, dog TV, um, the RV was sponsored. We ended up getting paid at the end of it. And we, they started in Nashville and we just did like meet and greets in all these cities. And she had it laid out all across this, all across the country. We did all these meet and greets where we would show up and people would come to meet the dogs and get pictures with them because they seen us on the pack. And it was a uh, one RV, seven dogs, seven humans, one cameraman, thirty one hundred miles in nine days. Nice across the country. Nice. It was really pretty cool. So we're actually talking about trying to do it again with just like me and Dixie and Kentucky and Derby, because you get us together. I mean, it's already it's a party, you know, because we have fun together. And then we could also do school meetups across the country. Kentucky can read his book, his his Derby book. I can read Dixie's coloring book to the kids. We can just do that across the country and do all this fun stuff and revisit it. So that's kind of in the talks too, but that would have to be that I would have to plan it because Kentucky's so busy right now. But that's something we're thinking about maybe doing one more because Kentucky because Derby's 11 now. So he's uh he needs to, we want him to do as much as he can too while he's with us, you know. So I know it's out there. I've always got something trying to figure something out TV wise to do. Cause I just love doing the TV stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's really great what you're doing as well with, with all of the visits and, and stuff like that. And if definitely Dixie definitely lifts people's spirits, you know, she's, she's just got a lot of personality, hasn't she? And she's very like lovable dog. So, uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, thanks for, for coming on my podcast and where, where can people follow you uh brian if they don't already so dixie has uh it's dixie the praying dog on facebook instagram tiktok youtube and then uh dixie the praying dog.com you can go in there and look at all everything that we do book appearances somebody book us in europe we want to come to europe we want to come see nick we want, we need to be paid to come out there we want to come out there and see nick but uh you need to come to london and do the do the london thing. i want to go back yeah i've got some unfinished business in london i need to come back i need to come out there so <laughs> Definitely want to do that, but 
Uh, one of the companies we started working with is based out of Germany. So there was some talk we can maybe go out there. It's, they're called a Saturn Pet Care. They've been in the dog food business for a long time, and they just expanded to, to America in 2019. They're very helpful. They're they're a much a lot like us. They like helping people and helping charities out, which is how I met them. They donated a whole truckload of dog food a couple of weeks ago to a bunch of dog charities in Indianapolis, and we kind of helped distribute it out. So. But that's that's kind of stuff we want to do. I'd love to get her back over to Europe and and see some things we didn't get to see. And yeah, just the social media is the best place to find us. And it's all kid friendly, family friendly stuff that we do. Uh, all the videos, everything we do, your kids can watch it just like the pack. I want to make sure it stays that way because she's all about helping people that need help. And if you can go watch a video and not have to worry about anything bad being on there, that's how her stuff will always be set up. Yeah, I mean, I think whenever I spoke to anyone that had watched the pack, if I, if you ask the children who their favorite dog is, it's always going to be, be uh, Dixie, and also I think Derby as well. You mentioned Derby; he's a he's a favorite too for sure. Yeah, and 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 the the whole realm of this thing hits you like when I'm in Vegas last week, and we're walking through. You know, Vegas is one of those popular cities in the world. We're walking through Vegas through a random casino or hotel, and somebody comes running up almost in tears. Is is that Dixie from the pack? I'm like, yeah, you want a picture with her? I'm like, I can get a picture with her. Yeah, you can pet her too if you want. So that happens all the time. When that happens, it's just super cool. And it makes me feel good about what we've done. And I'm getting a lot of it now. Just people recognize her from social media because she's had a couple videos get go viral. One's had like 28 million views of her driving her little Jeep around. So that's, that's special to me. That tells me that I'm doing something right and it's affecting people in the right way. And that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, thanks for the the reminiscing, Brian. I really appreciate it. Yeah, maybe next time we could talk about some actual dog training stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would take a minute to leave a review on whatever podcast app you listen to this on, whether that's Spotify, Apple, or any other podcast app, or just share this podcast with a friend or on Instagram or Facebook. That would really help more people to discover the podcast, and I would massively appreciate it. See you in the next episode.